in the Grotto Pod. We are in the Grotto Pod. We are all in the Grotto Pod, and that's exactly how we like it. Welcome to this episode of Grotto Pod Writers on Writing. Mm-hmm. I am only one of your hosts, Larry Rosen. And I'm the other, Bridget Quinn. Today, our guest is the poet and memoirist, Louise Nayer, author of two books of poetry, how to, buy, how to Bury a Goldfish, and The Houses Are Covered in Sound. Poetry books always have these sort of whimsical titles like that, don't they? Always? Well, not always. Maybe not always. Four quartets, not so much. Yeah, but those, I wasn't surprised Newer. to find them with those whimsical sort of titles. Mm-hmm. Uh, her memoir is called Burned. Not whimsical. Not at all whimsical, and as we'll discuss, not a, it's an appropriate title. Yeah, it's a pretty tough memoir. Tough, but awesome. It's pretty tough. Uh, it's pretty awesome. Uh, she writes of an incident that happened while growing up um, at age four. And one of the things I want to talk to you about is the amount of recollection she has of being four years old. Now, I have that type of recollection of being four. I do, too. Is it a writer thing? Because everyone I know is like, you are the, the repository of memories, not only for yourself, but for everyone you know. I have a theory about that. Lay it on it's me. a writing theory. I think part of what makes people writers is there is some moment, something that happens in childhood where you begin to stand apart and observe. Hmm. And that's partly why oh. you remember. And that's why you want to tell the story. I, I really think it's true because I have memories from very early childhood. Me too. And people will say it's not possible. And, and not, not just random memories. Exactly. Very clear, ongoing memories to the point of where if I'm having a day where I'm bored – I mm-hmm. just, you know what I think I'll do? I think I'll think about the time I was five years old. Same. You know, and I'll Same. just live there for a little bit. Not just that. I, Larry, I've written a memoir. Oh, that's right. Mm, but it's not published. I read an excerpt from it. You did, yes. In Best uh, best Sports Writing. Yeah. For what year was that? 2013. Very good. Before I even met you. I know. Oh, that's so exciting. That's the most Before exciting thing. Before I even met you, I thought, you know, I want to meet the writer of this. Oh, my God. Someday. Oh, I added it to my so bucket happy. list, so now it's checked off. And now we spend really cozy time together. We do here in the massive Grotto Pod But studios. my point about writing the memoir, although I really appreciate that plug, is that I, when I started to remember or to, to work at, like, oh, remember when that thing happened? What mm-hmm. was it like? I could sometimes remember what I was wearing as a child, and I could sometimes remember what was on the radio. Yeah. And maybe those aren't... Maybe those are somewhat fabricated memories. Maybe it wasn't that exact day. Right. But I could remember for sure being five years old and, uh, you know, uh, American Pie was on the radio. And it doesn't have to be – this will be – it'll be interesting to talk to her about the idea of the trauma spurring the memories mm-hmm. because I know for some people trauma wipes out the memories. Right. And when I think of the memories I have very clear memories of, I mean, maybe there are things that I have underrated – as trauma, but they usually seem like pretty run-of-the-mill, everyday Yeah, things. I have both, I would say. I mean, trauma is too strong in my situation, but... I mean, I definitely remember Bobby Lishman coming down the stairs and jumping Danny Rizzo when I was in first grade and watching that whole thing unfold. Yeah. That definitely stuck with me, but... I also remember waiting at the pool for my dad to pull up in the BMW he traded our favorite car for. That could have been traumatic. It was a little traumatic, yeah. I remember when Mike Steffen slapped Mrs. McGibney across the face and no called way. her a fucking bitch. Hey, that was Mike. Like first or second grade. Did he get expelled? Oh my god, yes! It was the craziest thing I'd ever seen. But then I ran out in the recess and told you everyone. Know what? I'll bet. I'll yeah. bet Mike Steffen never got in a fight for the rest of his life. It was the craziest thing I'd ever seen. Because everyone was scared of him. I don't know. Because he was afraid of nothing. And if you weren't afraid of your first or second grade teacher, it must have been second grade because Miss London was our first grade teacher. My uh, first grade teacher, no, my second grade teacher, Mrs. Zarkowski, mm-hmm. started the year as Miss Kelly, became oh, Mrs. Zarkowski, yep. sent a letter to my mother. We were going to, uh, they were putting the school play on. I was to wear blue pants, and she spelled it B-U-L-E. 
B L U E. B U L E. Oh, bull. Bull pants. Wear the bull pants. Mom, not real happy with that. Uh, it's not a great sign. It's not a good look when for a second grade teacher. They're teaching your kid to read and write. Yeah. It happens. It happens. Uh, yeah, it shouldn't, but it does. Um, it does. Because actually, you know, after I too was a high school teacher like yourself, mm-hmm. and I learned not only through teaching high school, but also being married to my very gifted wife, that good spellers are born, not made. I you really think believe, that's true? I really believe that. Either you got a knack or you don't. That might be true. My little sister, not much formal education, great speller. My brother Tom won the Montana State Spelling Bee at the age of 13. Now, is this a family trait? Is it genetically good spellers in the family? Not at that level. No. Not at that level. I'm a pretty good speller. I'm a good speller. Yeah. Yeah. My spelling was the worst after I had spent a year living in Norway, and it screwed up my Uh, brain. Because you're putting weird dots over everything? No, but just like a lot of the words are the same, but spelled differently. Like crossing out O's Bus is boost with two S's, and stop has two P's, and pretty soon I couldn't (laughs) remember anything. Well, for the record, my wife can't spell, and she doesn't care. She just doesn't care. Computers. Yep. God bless her. They've changed a lot. Uh, Louise is also the author of an upcoming, I don't know if it's a memoir. I don't actually no, no, know much I, about I don't, this. I is don't it think a it's guide? a memoir. It's a how-to book. It's a self-help book. Well, maybe it's, it's a little memoir because Louise just retired. She just retired from teaching, which we'll get more into, but it is called Poise for Retirement, uh, Moving from Anxiety to Zen. So that sounds possibly a little memoirish and possibly a little how-to. Right. So it could be a combo of both. But we're we'll going to find out. Find out. Yep. Right now, we're going to go get Louise. She's yep. sitting there in her office that yep. she shares with the very political Chris Cook and waiting for us. So she might be a little political, too. I think she is because she was active she's in like the 60s. She no, she's not a hippie now. Well, I mean, if you're a hippie, you really never stop. That might be true. I Unless you, out. like Jerry Rubin, actually end up selling bonds on Wall Street. But that's a different topic. Mm. Let's go get Louise okay. and find out more. All right. Let's do it. to stand behind the door. Mm-hmm. What you don't know is here in the Grotto Pod, uh, I remain stationary. It may not sound like that because you can hear every single time I move, my chair squeaks, but there, oh, there it, it is. And that's just me. That's just that's, Larry. That's all the movement I do. Louise, welcome to the Grotto Pod. I think I might have already said that. <laughs> um, so Louise has written a memoir about a trauma that happened to her when she was four years old. Uh, that I would say it's pretty safe to say has been sort of the controlling trauma of your life. <laughs> controlling, yeah. I'm trying to get <laughs> Controlling is an interesting way to put it, right? <laughs> no, I'm trying to uncontrol it. <laughs> okay, so before we roll on to, you know, writing the book and its impact and, and it being it's being re-released now. Yes. And the response to the book and all that great stuff. And let's just say we have already said the title of the book, Burned, but let's... Repeat right. it now. Burn. We did it. In case Louise here. doesn't know that we did say we, it's called Burn. Right. We did a whole little intro. We said great things about you. So many good things. But I don't think we can go anywhere before we get past what actually happened. So why don't you tell our audience what this book is about? Okay. Well, um, when I was four years old, um, my parents rented a house in Cape Cod, Massachusetts. It was actually our first family vacation. Ooh. And. Uh, when my parents went to um, a play and, and then to see friends, and during that time, some propane, new propane had been delivered. And 
we had a babysitter who checked the stove, and the stove was working fine. When my parents came home, my mother turned on the hot water, and there was no hot water. And she said, I want to wash my face. They must have forgotten to light the pilot in the basement, the hot water heater. And my mother was somebody who had a toolbox, who was very can-do, and and my father was much more hesitant. Um, And he also had been a doctor for the fire department, so he knew something about fires and all that kind of stuff. But anyway, they climbed down a rickety ladder into a cellar. My mother later called it the pit, and my mother, I didn't know this till years later, it was some kind of gender thing where I thought my dad had lit the match. And years later, I found out my mother lit the match <laughs> and gas had been escaping for hours. And interestingly, propane, um, there, was, there weren't laws on the books that said right. that gas had to have an additive. And so it was odorless. It was odorless. And so, yeah, if they had smelled it, they would, you know. Yeah. Oh, I smell gas. Something. Yeah. And um, so they lit the match, and the whole basement exploded, blew up mainly um, in my mother's face and hands. So amazingly, my parents climbed the rickety ladder out. It seems impossible. It seems impossible. It seems primal. Yeah. And actually, one thing that I didn't really want to put in the book a lot was that my dad climbed out first. I noticed that right away. Yeah. That yeah. He, he hightailed it. Yeah, he hightailed it. But that has to be instinct. It's that has to be instinct. But mm-hmm. I think there was some undercurrent because my mother told me that when I was about 50. She said, well, your dad climbed out first. And I wasn't quite sure what I was supposed to say. Like, well, he was on fire and, you know, and what what do you do? And But anyway, they climbed out, they rolled on the lawn, and my the babysitter and the neighbors heard their screams, took them away. And one of the haunting things was that my dad's burned bathrobe was stuck on a pole right in front of the house. Right, you wrote that's what you guys woke up to see the next and day. But up, what's he, amazing to me is, so there wasn't an explosion well, it was called a flash fire, and actually my mother said the only saving grace was that um, if the basement hadn't exploded, the whole house would have exploded right. yeah, from automatic action. You know, I found out all this stuff. Right, and research. that's what – we were talking about that yesterday. Right. Um, and that's sort of – I would think that absolves blame from you guys, from anyone feeling really guilty – because in a sense, I mean, your parents saved your lives. Oh, totally, totally. Did, did they know that? Were they cognizant of that eventually? Well, my mother said that to me mm-hmm. in the book. You know, I interviewed both of them, and I could kind of get what I could get. You know, it's a hard, hard thing to talk about. I'm obviously. curious about that, too. I don't know if I want to go there yet, but yeah. the intimate details of their lives and, and how they were feeling at certain times, those those are conversations I don't think I would have ever been able to have with my parents. Yeah, well, you know, it was a mixture of putting things together, knowing them, some uh, memoir elaboration Mm. kinds of things. So definitely um, some of that I had to – some of it I had to imagine, sticking with the facts, but I had to imagine it. Like how they're feeling. Right, yeah. So you're upstairs and you're four years old and you're asleep and you don't wake up? No, what happened was my our babysitter, Della, who was living with us at the time. With the cigarette breath. Yeah, with the cigarette breath and, you know, poor thing. Like, she had a lot of I kept thinking of the movie Brooklyn. Did (laughs) you ever see that movie? Yes, I did. I did. I could really see that. Yeah, and so she um, carried me, because I was four, and 
and held on to my sister's hands. We went across the road to the neighbor's house and ended up in the basement of the neighbor's house. And you remember this. It wasn't told to you. I totally remember it. It's bizarre. I mean, there are so many things in life that I really do not remember. And, you know, some of it is could just be a kind of weird writer's mind with, you know. We were just talking about that. Sensory detail and remembering things. And, you know, other 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 things is, you know, is trauma, you know, something Mm -hmm. so intense. But you not only remember the point of trauma, you remember pretty clearly the things leading up to it. It must have started out as a great trip. Oh, it was amazing. Well, you know, my parents were probably more like a lot of parents are now, busy, both parents. Too yeah. working. As I say, workaholic yeah. types. Yeah, which... Because um, oh. did your dad ever sleep? <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, he slept. Because he, he, he saw patients during the day. Right. And then he worked for the fire department at night. He was chasing fires on, which is really nasty. I know the irony ironic. of that yeah. is heartbreaking. Well, that was that was actually just once a week. I mean, okay. He had, he had Tuesday night, and we probably had one of the first plug-in phones of people I knew so the phone wouldn't ring in the middle of the night. Hmm. And actually, yeah, it was it was amazing. And when he left the fire department, he got supposedly the only standing ovation. They were so, they loved him so much. And after all he'd been through, too, to go back after the accident and work there. Yeah. I mean, that's... There's just something so deep about his humanity and his bravery, both your parents' bravery, yeah. that they faced life head on after. Exactly. I mean, because what we haven't said yet, obviously, they were disfigured. Yeah. yeah. It sounds like your mother a lot more than your father. My mother was somebody you would have stared at on right. Ross. For the rest all, of her life? For the rest of her life, everywhere. Even when they finally moved out to California, right. mm-hmm. the places, the place they picked, they knew somebody who had lived there, you know, a, a complete housing facility. Mm-hmm. So so really for the rest of her life, it was really hard to walk into a room. Yes, except my mother was so amazing. She would just walk into a room and say, hi, I'm Dorothy Nayer. Hi, I'm Dorothy Nayer. What and, do you got? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> she was, she was very assertive and she said she wanted to live the same life that she had before the accident. And she did. She kept working, even though it's a time when a lot of women didn't work. Oh, yeah. yeah. She continued yeah. to work. Well, she got a master's degree and almost a Ph.D. After? In, in nur- no, before, oh. but in mm-hmm. nursing education. And she was determined to have a career, which was very unusual. Yeah, it's fantastic. Time. So <clears throat> the book itself, to me, um, and listeners, yes, it, sounds hearing, it sounds like we're building something here. We're not. We're not. Someone near us is building something. And oddly enough, the sophisticated uh, sound deadening <laughs> system of the kind of like, grotto pod is not is keeping out the construction mm-hmm. noise. Uh, it's it, really fun to touch foam. It is. But it's I don't like, know. right. It is. It's very and wrinkly it's foam. It's yeah. attractively, uh, attractively. But somehow it doesn't dampen, working. I don't nope. know, electric screws and There's jackhammers and whatever else is happening. Going on, yeah. But, uh, we're, in the, we're in the heart of the Silicon Valley of San Francisco. Yeah, so. We are, but we're not here to talk about building buildings. We're here to talk about building a life. So Yeah, and a career. And a career. So when I started reading this book, I thought, all right, pretty straightforward. It's going to be triumph for the soul, you know, parents, <laughs> and boom. But I think something interesting happens mm. uh, about 100 pages in when you go to live with your relatives, aunt and uncle. Aunt and uncle and cousins. So why don't you explain a little about what happened? So your parents, they went away. Nobody told you where, <laughs> right. which is an interesting decision. And I thought, oh, 50s. But no, they consulted 
what should we do? And they were advised, right? Yeah. right. Well, we did know that they were hurt and they were in a hospital, mm-hmm. but we didn't know exactly where they were. And the big thing that actually the psychiatrist, um, Stella Chess, said was that don't tell them when you go out of the hospital, you know, at home to recover between operations. Just make sure they know they're in the hospital. So it doesn't feel like, what are they doing home and we're not home? Exactly, exactly. How come they're not picking us up? Yeah, yeah. so where did you go? We went um, to Sherburn, New York. I looked, I Google mapped it. It's nothing. It's nothing. It's a blink of an eye. What's the closest town? Like, where would you go to Um, get food? Well, the closest town was Norwich, where my aunt and uncle moved later. And... We and that was a whole discussion because my dad wanted us to stay in New York City because some friends offered to take us in, mm-hmm. and my mother, you know, I, and as a mother, I totally understand this. She wanted us with relatives. She wanted us, you know, with her her brother, her people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> I get that. Yeah. I really do. Yeah, and they were. Um, so very different than my parents. Couldn't possibly have been more yeah. different. The setting couldn't have been more different. Totally. You grew up in the, the what is it, the Peter Cooper Tower, Peter Cooper Peter Village? Peter Cooper Village, and then later Greenwich Village. <clears throat> I did yeah. a deep dive on Peter Cooper so Village. So cool. Fascinating. Yes. Yeah, so 1950s cool. New York, man, my oh, dream. Yeah. Totally. Playgrounds, yep. tons of kids yep. after the war. Everyone's dressed up all the time. <laughs> well, I don't know about that. Really? Not, not I had so my lanyard around my neck, and at six years old, I had total freedom. Just running around New York. Amazing, I think. That is amazing. And I bicycled all around and I went to walk to school by myself. It was amazing. Yeah, it was really it's it was a great place to grow up. It was, yeah, it was a really, yeah. So, so anyway, there we are on a farm, um, which was at first, especially for me, really, really difficult because I seem to, I guess, feel everything in my body, you know, whether it's skin rashes or this or that. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, you and, do a lot of throwing up in this I book. I know, I do a lot of throwing up. Yeah, so a lot of, um, yeah, so anyway. But my um, aunt was aunt and uncle were amazing. My uncle was a little like my mother. He was very direct, um, strict in, in a certain way, but totally everything he did with, was for his family. And he was your mother's brother. He was my mother's brother. They weren't doing well financially. They were living on half of a, of a dairy, of a house of dairy farmers. So my sister and I went from the streets of New York City to going into trying to feed the chickens and the cows. It's like extendo camp. Yeah, exactly. I know. It's like, it's like those socialist camps they used to send New York City kids to. <laughs> we call them kibbutzes. <laughs> kibbutzes. But yeah. in upstate New York? No, no. you got to go across the oh, water yeah. for that. But I yeah. think they have a tradition of sending yeah. them to farms in New York. I could be wrong. I've, yeah. read, I've read a little bit of literature yeah, yeah, that's yeah. like this. Yeah, but, I, but what was... What was amazing was we were totally outdoor kids. We went ice right. skating. We That's the amazing part that eventually you adapted. Totally adapted. And so that was, you know, by the time, I, and totally loved my uncle and aunt, and we had cousins who were there. And my older cousin, who was 13, really took me under his wing mm-hmm. and would, you know, kind of baby me or take care of me. And my, I had gone to one of the most, you know, famous progressive preschools in New York already. <laughs> you know, I was only four, um, Bank Street School, and I didn't really want to go to school when I was, you know, that age. Yeah. Now it's very common. Now, now it's common. Yeah. Three years old, you go to school, but back then, um, I didn't really want to go. So you and, just sat it out. 
<laughs> I was amazed by that. Like, yeah, you don't have to go. Just hang out here on the no, farm. So my aunt said, do you want to go to school? I, it was amazing. I'm four years old, and she's asking me if I yeah. want to go to school. And I said, no. <laughs> so, wow. What the heck? And so I thought that, yeah, I don't know if my parents had any part in that. I wouldn't have thought so. I guess the part that amazes me is that she gave you the choice. Like, if I had someone else's kid living with me, I'd be like, you're going to school. Totally. Yeah, I go know. To school. I know. So I got to, yeah, hang you know, around here. Right. And, 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 and in a way, you know, I got this extra mothering, which I really needed. And, and probably a really different style of mothering. Yeah. Yeah. As very well. much. Yeah. So, so by the time your father comes to get you, yeah. you're not ready to go. Well. And there's, that, a, and there's actually a twin narrative here. Your sister, who plays a very large part mm-hmm. in this book, uh, she's telling you they're dead. Yeah. Yeah. Which I can't imagine if you're four years old and the person yeah. you worship tells you, well, they're dead. And you right. you really got no choice but to go, well, she wouldn't lie to me. Well, you know, my sister is very precocious. I mean, I remember she read all of Sherlock Holmes when she was about nine. She was always, in, you know, investigating. One of those, and, yeah. And, and very artistic, too. She's amazing. But she... Um, she was putting all these things together. She said the handwriting's not the same. It and is then, pretty clever. I yeah. know. It's like very Nancy Drew. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And then the voice isn't the same. Um, and then what really set it off was we were led to believe they were always in the hospital. So the phone calls, which were quite traumatic. Um, Go, my, in both directions. In both directions. When I read the first one, I could you imagine oh. if you were in the hospital and you called your children and they screamed and got off the phone? They didn't want to talk to you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, mm-hmm. gosh. And so, um, yeah, so what happened was when my mother just decided, I'm not listening to a professional tell me when I can call my children and when I can't. And so she called, quote, out of turn on a Tuesday right. instead of a Saturday. Which, if you were writing a novel about these people, would be perfectly in character for her. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly, yeah. And so she just called, and my dad was home at that point in between operations. So my sister said, you know, put Daddy on the phone. And and my mother, you know, said, well, he's downstairs. And my sister just started screaming, he's dead. And then she had a horrible asthma attack. Oh, right. And and what's interesting is my sister had asthma as a child, but when she, my aunt was so afraid she was going to have an asthma attack, when she saw my sister getting upset, my aunt just used some kind of weird common sense, which I know does not work, by the way, for listeners who have asthma, always for asthma, but she just said, Anne, stop it. And amazingly... It worked. I, I can't believe it, but it didn't work this time. And so she was and, – and then That's I think terrifying. my aunt got really that, scared. It must have been – those were the days before albuterol. I can't imagine. Yeah. Well, my sister had some kind of medicine some contraption that my dad or something. Yeah, that's right. And it was like a liquid or something. Yeah. And, of course, when my when she had it with my dad, he'd just come and give her a shot of yeah. adrenaline in the middle of the night. I remember that. Oh, wow. Let's talk a little bit about your dad. Uh, he, he, I find him to be a pretty compelling character because he's really – struggling yes. emotionally he's the least disfigured right but the most uh broken spirited right it would be incredibly hard it would be to have your we were talking about this yesterday larry and i yeah. you know to have your partner right. be so right. physically altered and to it it calls up in you your deepest humanity Right. Yeah. But at a time when you're struggling oh, yeah. and you've lost right. your kids in a way and it's just oh. well, losing the kids. I mean, I can't even quite imagine. I think just 
bringing up two kids. Yeah. Any, I mean, I have two children. Bringing them up anyway. Actually, you so. can imagine bringing up two children. Yes. <laughs> and you have two daughters, which is interesting. Which is, and, and weirdly enough, they were born, they're two years apart, just like my sister. Same age. And born in the same month. Oh. Oh. Their I due know. dates were, were you the, not. Were you the same age as your mother when they were born? Did I get I that from the beginning little, of the book? A little bit younger. Okay. I was, I think, I think she was thirty-eight and I was thirty-six. But the question I was going to ask about your father is, I mean, was he a depressive type? Yes. Okay. Yeah, I was going to go into that. I mean, my dad, um, my dad lost his whole original family before he met my mother. His dad uh, was a pharmacist and and lost his store during the depression. And then my uncle died at 24 of kidney failure. And then my grandmother died at 59, probably being heartbroken about yeah. all the things that happened. Oh so he would, and I, you know, I think he had a propensity towards depression. He definitely did, and anxiety. You know, sometimes I think I got my anxiety all from <laughs> early childhood trauma, but I think it was partly. Nature. From my nature dad. and nurture. Nature. Awesome. Yeah, nurture. yeah, right. Both. Double <laughs> dose. <laughs> What's, what could be better? Um, I mean, I want to ask about, so this book came out seven years ago? It came out in 2010, yes. 2010, so about seven years ago. Now it's been reissued. Yes. And what has been the experience of revisiting, you know, I mean, you probably mm. talked about it. For, it came out. You talked about it for years. Oprah loved it. Right. I'll talk awesome. about that, too. Yeah. Um, yeah. So maybe first first Oprah, then now. Oprah okay. first. Okay. Yes, yeah. Oprah. Well, it was sent from my publisher to Oprah Magazine, and she listed it as one of 10 upcoming titles, you know, along with Anne Lamott and Ian McEwen. Excellent. And, and so, what, so is there a exciting. way to quantify what kind of bump that has on sales? It was, you know, it went up for a while. You know, it it had it definitely had an Oprah bump. Mm-hmm. You know, I wouldn't <laughs> no. say that. It's you like know, a baby bump. Say, an Oprah right, bump. An Oprah it's got to be helpful. <laughs> yeah, right, it's got to right. be helpful. Unless yeah, you're James Fry. Oh yeah, and it, and it was totally helpful. Also in getting readings places exactly. and getting mm-hmm. into radio spots, all of that. Yeah. So what's the uh, what was the genesis behind the re-release? Well, you know, suddenly the press uh, went defunct, and so here oh. I here I am. You know, here I am teaching classes or talking to people about, oh, you could get my book. And then it's like, no, you can't get my book. Or there are a few copies for one cent left on Amazon. Oh, <laughs> or, that's heartbreaking. That's, that yeah, you put so much time into it. And then it was taken off Kindle. And anyway, the way the whole thing happened wasn't good. And so I was just hoping to get it republished. And I talked to my agent and she said, oh, it's kind of, you know, it could be tough to, to do that. And then I was with a friend who has a poetry press, um, Diane Frank, who has Blue Light Press. And she also does some novels and memoirs. And she said, I'll do your book for you. And it's funny because that's how my second poetry book got done. Mm-hmm. She just heard me read something. I was very lucky. And it was not, it's not... Um, That's someone who enjoys being a publisher. She loves it. She has a bookshelf of hundreds of books that she has published. Oh, I mean, so just, fabulous. It's just, she totally loves it. So I thought, yeah. So I now mean, that it's back out, are you re-promoting it? I am re-promoting it. I mean, part of the issue right now is I have um, another book, suddenly a writing surge yes. after four years of not much going on. Uh, 
I have another book coming out in June mm-hmm. called called um, Poised uh, for Retirement. Exactly, which started as a memoir of leaving City College. We were just talking about this, Larry and I. Is it a memoir? Is it how to? And it I is, thought maybe it's both. It is. I don't you know, know. We'll be staring down the barrel of retirement soon enough. Bit, yeah. <laughs> and I'm still at the anxiety part. I haven't gotten to the Zen part. <laughs> um, yeah, I know. I have to practice up my Zen when I do talks on the book. <laughs> be a little more Zen. <laughs> still read up. Right, read up on my Zen. But um, the, the boy, I totally lost the question. Was um, Well, basically, you have a second book coming out. And, book and oh, yeah, promoting. Book. So... Um, so I've done some promotion. I've done some readings for Burned um, at a library, at a bookstore. Ubalit, uh, you did that? And I did Ubalit, mm-hmm. which was amazing with Vanessa Waugh. That was really great. And I have a few more readings coming up and just promoting, carrying it around and like, here's my book and mm-hmm. this and that. But um, with the other book coming up, I'm kind of going into promotion for that. So I'll continue it. But... What's wonderful is, first of all, the re-release, I was able to put back some scenes Mm. because I had control over it. Mm -hmm. So there was a scene of a bonfire when I was uh, a little girl, and it was very strange. That was a couple years later, right? That was How far at, after? No, that was at the farm. Oh, okay. At the farm. There was a, a Halloween bonfire. And so I was able to put that back because that was a very powerful scene to me, to see this fire and not wanting to go near it, but wanting to get candy because I'm a total sugar <laughs> like, so. so the book ends three years after the accident, mm-hmm. at which time I would use things had not gone back to a settle to normal but they'd settled into new normal. a new normal right. a routine which is odd i mean your old normal only lasted four years right <laughs> sad, sad that, that is your normal right so it's half your life right that's true that's so true. take us beyond that take us from seven-year-old louise to poet louise whose wedding is announced in the New York Times. <laughs> yeah, so, so Larry Googled Louise. To 60s <laughs> activist Louise. That was one of the first things that came up. First thing that popped up. This is so bizarre. You know, it could be worse when you Google founder Poe Bronson. <laughs> oh, wait till you hear. The sex, sexiest writer alive. People sexiest. Yeah, I'd have to do that. Writer. Yeah, wow, yeah. wow, wow. True story. So. Yeah, well, it, the, the book actually, it actually have nine when it ends, and we, my parents had received that's. Okay, two, two years. Oh, with the settlement. Yeah, my parents received what my mother called the burn money, and we're <laughs> on a ship, uh, the Queen Elizabeth, oh, right. going to Europe, always my mother's dream. And my the person who edited it the last time, who sadly passed away, he um, he loved ships. So he said, end the book on the ship. Because so, <laughs> I so had triumphant. Written, yeah, because I had written all this teenage onk stuff. Oh. you know about the accident and and yeah, I didn't put any of that in. So yeah, so so. So <laughs> the book ends in triumph, but the angst stayed with you. Um, you know what's funny is that I think I did realize the angst stayed with me for a long time, and I think part of it is I had a life of of privilege. Really, mm-hmm. I had a wonderful school and fun and that's opportunity. Something, that's something I talked to you about last week that I just love being taken to that place. Yeah, yeah. I grew up t- fifteen years later. 
in Pennsylvania in a small town thinking, boy, that would be the coolest boy. To be one of those watching Family Affair and thinking <laughs> to be Buffy and Jody would be the coolest me thing ever. Me too. Me too. <laughs> I you, stayed on the farm. I stayed on the dairy farm. Yeah, and I only, always wanted to be in New York City. You were only on the farm. Exactly. So we were going into New York to visit grandparents. Right, and I, right. Boy, this, this would be yeah, the place. Yeah, I yeah, always well, wanted to live in New York when I was, was a kid. Yeah, it was very exciting. And, you know, my parents had more, you know, not super rich, but more than enough money. So we got to go to summer camps and we got to do all these things. So I think a lot of what I felt inside was really hidden. Uh, Mm. You know, I remember just one teacher once took me aside and said something like, you know, I was on the basketball team, I rode, I did all these things and music, you know, but something you don't feel good. Something's off. Something is off. And I remember thinking, God, why is he saying that to me? But when I turned 21 and I graduated from University of Wisconsin in that very explosive 60s time, mm-hmm. civil rights and very exciting, um, I started getting panic attacks. And, you know, it's, it's hard to say how much is, you know, some of it hormonal or, you know, all these things. But I related it. A oh. lot to whoops, sorry, <laughs> my uh, hitting hitting my glasses against. The yeah, table. here at the Grotto Pod, you it's, get used it's to easy that to interesting have little happen. noises. <laughs> yeah. It's just, yeah, yeah. So anyway, um, I started having panic attacks, and you know, it first happened after a breakup with a boyfriend, and I went to a jazz concert, and the walls seemed to be closing in on me, and I went to a. To be fair, I think that happened to a lot of people in the '60s. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Mm. Yeah. And I went to a psychologist once, and then I said, oh, I'm doing this and this and this, and everything's fine, and I'm, you know. And they're like, quit running so fast. Yeah, and I'm like doing this, and I'm doing that. And they went away for a while, and then they came back, and I started seeing a therapist. Um, and, you know, the I don't, actually, I don't think she was the greatest therapist in the world, but she said one thing to me that got to me. I was so concerned about my parents. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God, what they went through and what they dealt with and the burns and what it's like to walk on the street. And she looked at me and she said, but you were only four years old. And I cried for the first time for myself. Yeah. So that was very powerful. Yeah. You know, and I was just I was just thinking I was going to ask do you ever feel looking back like you were sort of deprived of a normal part of childhood which is being really angry at your parents. Uh, yeah, I you know, I think Because you couldn't because well, how can you be mad at them? Look what they've gone through. Well, I think I was like that. My sister I showed anger more. You know, it could have just been personality-wise, but I remember her slamming doors and doing all. She comes things. off as a little bit more of a spitfire. She's feisty. Yeah, yeah. a little spe- feisty. Yeah, where I was, it. I once said to my mother, "This would have been in the book if I'd done my teenagers." I once said to my mother, "Oh, I was fifteen or fourteen. Oh, your shoes look like old lady shoes." And, and that's the. <laughs> That's the worst thing you could say. Exactly. And my <laughs> mother... The, I know she cared about her shoes and her clothes <laughs> yeah, a lot. Totally, totally, totally. And so my mother got really upset, and my father comes racing into my bedroom with a picture of my mother before she was burned oh. and said, she looked like this. How could you say that to her? And like, had wow. you su- now, that's interesting that he would throw that guilt card out there. Now, had you suspected... All along? I mean, because that could have been the cloud you were living under anyway. Totally, totally. And now he 
confirms it. Totally. totally. <laughs> because it's a very innocuous thing to have said, really. I know. Uh, I, I mean, know. As as, my daughter's 15, and <laughs> right. I don't get away with As far as teenage girls no, saying totally, mean things to their totally. moms, it doesn't rank yeah. <clears throat> yeah. yeah. And I think my mother maybe would have been able to deal with it more. In some way, she was direct, and you know. Right. Whereas my dad probably felt whatever guilt he felt that the you know who knows that the accident even happened, that all of those things, that he was constantly like if she blew her nose, worried. You know, she would choke when we ate dinner, and you know it was like stop <coughs> choking, and she said, "Well, I choke every night." Right, you put that in the book. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. Well, it sounds like from reading the book and from what you're telling us, I mean, you're kind of daddy's girl, and. Your sister's mom's. Well, you similar know, personalities. Oh, maybe, maybe a little bit. Yeah, my mother. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But in some ways, my sister was so intensely close to my dad when she was young. That's right, because that they shared interests. They shared and my, you know, talked all intellectual kind of things that my, um, that his. You know, the abandonment, the accident, and then his just such concern about my mother all the time. I think I know hit her terribly, terribly hard. Hmm. So, Louise, you are in your early 20s. It's the height of the 60s. You're in a college town. You're having some anxiety. Uh, Did you ever look to self-medicating substances to get you through the times? Well, you know, it's interesting. It's like early 20s, I'd already left college. So, Mm -hmm. you know, 18. I'd say when I was, I was a very, for, um, for a child of that time, I was pretty, I know maybe not the right term, but I followed traditional in some Mm -hmm. ways. I was very athletic I was not into drinking or smoking cigarettes when I was 18 and 19. And I had a a boyfriend who was like that, too. And then around when I went to France on my junior year, which is actually the next. That's when everyone starts. I know. know. France. 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 Come on. The next memoir that I'm writing. Oh, Um, yeah. Nice. um, Anyway. and, and, And so that. Um, I met my friend Ken, who's still my best friend from New York. Art historian. Art historian. Mm. And uh, he he and I started smoking Chiton cigarettes. As one will. I took my first. <laughs> I hope this is okay to talk about, like, drugs on the air. I took, well, I guess you are um, now. The Grotto Pot offers safety. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And probably the statute of limitations, I'm okay. sure. Has as long as you don't get a contact high. Anyway. <laughs> if there was ever a place you were going to get contact would high, it. this would be it. Um, so I took my first acid trip with Ken on the island of Ibiza. Ken and another friend. Dude. And boy, I think there's acid trips happening dream. on the island of Ibiza every day since 1957. I know. And, oh, my gosh, I mean, it was, I, I experienced it all. You know, I, I looked at his face, Ken's face, and I saw all the blood running through his veins. <laughs> but it was beautiful. It was like a Ken. beautiful. Oh, Ken. Oh. Yeah, so it was, it was just, um, yeah. So I did take acid. Of course, I smoked marijuana. You know, who didn't smoke marijuana? I mean, maybe some. But I was not on the high end of the drug stuff because I tend to overreact. You know, it's like when I took acid, everybody else has stopped tripping and like You're still going. I'm going on Got your money's worth. twenty four hours right. <laughs> so when did um when did youthful exuberance become poetry? Okay, well I started writing poetry in in high school. I even um 
went to a program actually at Phillips Exeter Academy where I took good a, lord a, I know which was well you bizarre. went to a really well regarded high school as well yeah it was very progressive so there were mm-hmm. a lot of um, artists it wasn't wasn't an Upper East Side you're kind school. of a, you're kind of a red diaper baby huh um, I would say I'm fifty percent the red Jewish diaper, part but, yeah yeah from yeah. my dad yeah. I mean my mother was a liberal but my dad was more of a socialist right that's, you know. that's how you describe it I wrote down on my notes red diaper baby yeah yeah so half i don't know which half but (laughs) i'm half of a red diaper but yeah so i started writing poetry and um it's funny in high school i sent poems to the magazine and never got accepted but i'm one of these i guess i'm what can i say what i don't have in let's say perfectly natural talent i make up in hard work so Hmm. i worked and worked and worked kind of a blue collar poet yeah blue collar Uh, may i just say though that that is the recipe for writerly success that's the only (laughs) recipe well it's the recipe for all success yeah i guess yeah Yeah. it's easy to give up on the writing though i think persistence and hard work can't be beat and thick skin yeah, so when I came, when I graduated, I actually studied with a poet named Ruth Stone in mm-hmm. Wisconsin. I got into her workshop, which was very exciting. And then I came back to New York and decided to be a poet. And I studied with a man named Tom Weatherly at St. Mark's in the Bowery. And then I knew I wanted so to cool. go, I knew I wanted to go um, to graduate school in poetry. And I ended up going to school in Buffalo. That's right. And Robert Creeley and John Logan were there. So they were my two mentors. Who you may have heard of. Friends, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, and I decided I was going to be a poet. And that's what I did for many years. And what brought you west? Oh, craziness. I just was. That's why we all come west. Yeah, I mean. I got a call from a friend of mine who I would love to find. If you're hearing this podcast, get in touch with me. But she ended up in, in an ashram for 40 years after selling real estate in Oh, my God. I love Oregon. that combo. Real estate to ashram rather than ashram to real estate. Totally. It can so, go either way. It can? It I did not know this. All right. Okay. Yeah. Good to so know. she made all this money in real estate and decided to go into an ashram. But anyway, she called me and she said, she was in Berkeley and she said, oh, my roommate, um, or I've decided to leave my apartment in Berkeley and I need somebody to take my room. Do you want to come out to California? And did she, I, because she was going up to the ashram? No, at oh. that point she was on a she journey. Was some other thing. The, pre pre This is the eighties. Was seventies or eighties? This was seventy five. Seventy five. Okay. Just some new oh, generation so stuff. So you're coming out at the height of seventies. Um, like, uh, East Bay and San Francisco was no joke. It's yeah, and I, groovy. Kind of gritty. It was groovy, but it's funny. I don't. You know, I I don't necessarily consider myself on the cutting edge so it was kind of like tell us the truth you're a nerd (laughs) huh i i'm a nerd artsy (laughs) moody whatever you know there was wacky stuff going on in marin at that time yeah like crazy wife swapping nutty stuff yeah well but you're busy writing poetry no i did the hot tubs and i did some of that (laughs) she did the hot tubs not a nerd No, not a total Flowers in her hair, you know. Yeah, yeah. And so, um, yeah, so I came out and I decided, and I read poetry at the most bizarre places, like bars and... Yeah. This is someone who'd been studying at St. Mark's, and now she's she's reading at bizarre places. Now the bizarre places. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But just, you know, so I read poetry and I met some crazy people, and 
I always thought I would go back to New York. And there's there's a little bit of a sadness there, I really. Yeah. So I think that happens to a lot of people. But we talked about the other night. I know. It's sort of, it's funny, you know, Ronald Reagan once famously said that anyone, any Californian who leaves California is in a constant state of homesickness. But I think it... Not Joan Didion. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) She disproved that one. Yeah. But it goes both ways. It goes both ways. Yeah, and definitely. And so I ended up applying for a California Arts Council grant to teach um, poetry in nursing homes and senior centers. And I was in New York at that point, living with my parents, thinking I'd stay in New York, and the grant came through. And so I, I had a dream where I saw California sunshine, and I thought, okay, I'm going to go back. And I did. And you're not sorry. Not to I'm put not, words in your mouth. No. no. I, I think it's gotten easier and easier to, to finally leave New York. I have a stepdaughter and grandkids and, and son-in-law. In Connecticut. So we go back so you go every back. year. And your parents yeah. eventually came out here, too. My parents came out here. At mm-hmm. first, it was like, oh, my God, my parents right. are coming out. <laughs> right. There's a reason why I keep them on the other they're, side of the country. They're so powerful. <laughs> and now I want to have a place to stay in New York and all this stuff. Uh, they lived here for 16 years until they died. So my kids got to grow up with them. Oh, that's so great. nice. Uh, it was so wonderful. Yeah. And your kids are both in California now? My kids are both in California. One daughter's in San Francisco. Nice. Working, doing environmental so work. Do you get grandkid access? Um, not yet? Not yet. Okay. Not yet. And then... Um, They're so personal. My, well, well, you know, it's a grotto pod. Yeah. yeah why yeah. not? Yeah. And my other daughter is in L.A. and she's an artist. Yay. Yeah. So now, um, as we wrap it up, tell us a little bit about the new book. Okay. Well, the Poise for Retirement. Poise for Retirement. Poise for Retirement. Now, actually, tell us, too, you know, your job was you taught at City College for 25 Seven years. years. Oh, I thought you were there for 20 years. No, I was there first part-time at City College and College of San Mateo called a freeway flyer where you have your... Your, all your or your crap. Back when it was possible to actually fly down the freeway. <laughs> right. Now you'd call it a freeway crawler. Right, exactly, right now. But I finally – so I, was, I did that for 13 years. I remember, you know, the kids were in different places. Anyway, it was crazy. And then, uh, I mean, child care places. Yeah. Not, not – they were sent out to – Just send them away. Yeah. Farm. Send them to the farm. <laughs> the dairy farm. <laughs> right. Live like I did. That's no, right. No, you don't want to do that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I did. But yeah. anyway. <laughs> and so um, anyway, so then I was full time at City for 13 years. I totally adored the students and I liked being in the classroom. I really liked that. But the amount of papers was crushing. Mm. So really crushing. Were you teaching English? I was teaching English that's, and creative writing. Yeah, that's just yeah. brutal. But it's 30 per class. Right. And, and the worst part about it, as I just taught high school, not college, but you you don't have the time to give them what they need. Oh, exactly. On yeah, each paper. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, the hours were great in terms of you classroom, know, hours. classroom hours. But anyway, so I left at 61 and a half, partly because I, I ended up with a, a bad neck from all the grading. And I think stress because I wanted, all I wanted to do was write. Right. And I'm so happy to be writing now and at the grotto. So I kept a journal of the last six months before I left and thought, huh, this could turn into a book, which is really a hybrid. It's not a total memoir. Um, It has interviews in it now, Hmm. and it has some calming techniques at the end. 
and calming because it's scary to leave your identity when you leave your work. It's yeah, scary to leave I, like what's financial the, security, right? All I of those see. things. Mm-hmm. I had five different things. You know, the ex- losing your identity, fears of isolation, mm. um, financial fears, all of those things. <laughs> so basically, being a the basics. I, yes, yeah, the all basics. The life. Um, yeah. So so I I wrote it and it's coming out in June. So I'm really excited. So my story is kind of threaded throughout. Fantastic. And I'm sure something that is timely. Uh, very timely for a lot of people, you know? Yeah, there are a, a lot of baby boomers. A lot of baby boomers. Yeah. A lot of baby boomers. And, and I should say a lot of us do go back to work part-time because you can't make and it. And maybe a lot of people who, in a sense, have put off what they had hoped to do. Exactly. Right. To raise exactly. their family, to have enough money, because to have security, and now they're turning back to exactly. this other thing. And, and it's a real, there's real inspiration seeing that you've done that. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Because in, success. A, because in a way, you're not really retiring. No, no. I have I know. I see you here all the time. You're working all the time. Yeah, yeah and I'm still teaching. And still, yeah, and part of it is, you know, you're kind of retiring like Brent Musburger is retiring. He's just <laughs> going to do games every once in a while. Just a little sports comment. Yeah. There yeah. Well, she doesn't have to grade papers. Well, you do because you teach classes here. Um, yeah, but I don't really grade It's not the much. same. Yeah. I do yeah. teach through Ollie at Berkeley, but that's I, I don't grade a lot. So. Yeah, grading's the worst. Yeah. It's bad. Well, Louise Nair, thank you for coming into the Grotto Pod. One last thing about Louisa you may not know is that she is my neighbor. Yes. In life? Glen Park. In life. Oh, we not in, in the, the grotto, same. in the world. No, no, in the grotto, we said she shares office with the very political Chris Cook. Correct. Exactly. But you could be next door, and that would be a neighbor. But you float right. around. No, I, I float around, okay. which is amazing, given my, given my size. But um, <laughs> <laughs> So before we sign off, uh, actually, one other thing. Um, website, Twitter, something to tell people where to go to learn more. Yeah, well, I have a website, Louise Nayer, N-A-Y-E-R, at, uh, dot com. And so, and my books, the new books on Amazon, it can be pre-ordered. Oh, do uh, it. The Vern, release date is June 13th. June 13th. And um, I do teach and I work with people individually. My Twitter I am not great with Twitter, which oh. I have one thing I have to work on. But I, I, I do have a Baby Twitter Boomer. account, Elnayer One. I think that's it. There's more than one. No, no, you are one. She is one. I got two, it. Guys, two through seven. We don't care about that. One. <laughs> I get it. As, I couldn't get my name. As for us, you can follow us on Twitter oh, at true. the Grotto Pod, uh, Facebook slash Grotto Pod. Uh, you can follow me at that Larry Rosen. You can follow me BQ at at B Quinterest. It's like Pinterest, but with two ends. (laughs) Louise, thank you for coming into the Grotto Pod. BQ, take us out. All right, everybody in Grotto Land, read, write, and just keep working. 